What's up, movie lovers? Welcome to another edition of No Content for Old Men. I'm your host and guide through this 2020 movie hellscape, Matt Craig. Thank you for listening. Today we got something really special planned. We are doing full reader recommendations, okay? So I put out the bat signal a couple weeks ago for movies that I have not seen. And we've got five or six that you guys picked out that I really enjoyed. It was fun connecting with, you know, friends from various points in my life and just uh, readers of this newsletter and then diving into movies that I definitely would not have checked out on my own. So we're going to kind of spin the dial here. Uh, I I do want to have a disclaimer up front. The first one of these I recorded was with my brother through the Anchor app and the quality is much better in that one, but it was cutting out as you'll hear a little bit. I try to edit it around that. So after that, I decided to just go with my phone recording audio. And so you'll see there is a drop in quality. Hope you can uh, bear with me on that one. We will obviously figure that out for future segments. And I also want to note that this is something I would love to do on a uh, rolling basis. So from here on out, if you have a movie recommendation, whether I've seen it or not, or it's just something that you watched and really enjoyed, um, I would love to hear from you. So reply to my newsletter via email or hit me up on Twitter at Mr. Matt Craig, and we'll put together one of these little five-minute micropods and kind of throw them maybe at the beginning or end of uh, my regular weekly show and and just whenever we get them we'll put them up so get those recommendations ready for me um until then we're gonna head to the first movie of the week first recommendation this week comes from my brother and he recommends 1992's patriot games based on the Tom Clancy novel of the same name and starring Harrison Ford as the hero, Jack Ryan. Uh, And beside him, a kind of who's who of supporting characters throughout the 21st century. We've got Sean Bean, we've got Samuel L. Jackson, before two years later he would star in Pulp Fiction and become Samuel L. Jackson. But over here, he's just another colonel in the U.S. military. James Earl Jones is in this movie in a very small role, as well as Basically, every actor with a Scottish or Irish accent you can think of. (laughs) The plot, for those that aren't familiar, is basically Jack Ryan is a CIA analyst who happens to be traveling to England to give a guest lecture and witnesses a terrorist event. He intervenes, and in the scuffle, he happens to kill one of the terrorists, whose brother, played by Sean Bean, basically leads a crusade to terrorize and then ultimately try to kill Jack Ryan and his family. So things become personal uh, amongst the usual geopolitical strife of a Tom Clancy novel. Um, It's probably no surprise why my brother loves this movie. I mean, Jack Ryan is not only an ex-Marine, but also a professor at the Naval Academy. And my brother both went to the Naval Academy and was in the Marines. Um, But as my brother joins us now, the first question I'm asking everyone is, Drew... Why'd you pick this movie for the movie for me this week? Yeah, I'll be the first to admit that this is definitely kind of a niche film that fits my interests and background with kind of like the national security uh, type spy thriller vibe, uh, which I really like. And I realize it may not be for everybody, but it doesn't get a whole lot of like coverage, if you will, on these like top 10 Netflix lists or whatever. So I thought, you know, older film that people may not have heard about but i think is really good so and what yeah what what is it about so like i 
had never seen this one, I don't think. Um, yeah. But, like, you and I together watched Clear and Present Danger, like, a million times. And I know our dad is a huge fan of the Tom Clancy book. So, like, what is it about Tom Clancy that uh, that is so appealing? Yeah, I think, too. One, the original Jack Ryan character is really appealing to me because it's that steps up to do you know badass things when the time comes out of like a sense of duty or like a, a, you know just because he has the capability and sort of the and who so that's a, that relatable right um, one could be that person in London's and then uh, I think the second thing too is Tom Clancy kind of in the books and then a little bit in the movies they interlace the kind of behind the scenes like peek behind the curtain uh into this other like i said national security issues and how he's deal with those and then the second thing that i wanted to ask you about was um like there's kind of like a proliferation of jack ryan characters across movie history um so i I, like the ones i wrote down i remembered harrison ford is in two alec baldwin is in hunt for around october Chris Pine yeah. is in the new one, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. Um, ben Affleck was in The Sum of All Fears as Jack Ryan. And then, obviously, there's the John Krasinski Amazon show, which I know that you watch. Yeah. So, like, how would you how would you compare, I guess, like, the different portrayals of Jack Ryan? Because the thing, I guess, what I'm getting at is the thing I really liked about this one in particular is it's, like, not really trying to be an action movie. Right. Right. It's, like, kind of like a geopolitical Sherlock Holmes sort right. of situation. Uh, it was like more of a detective story. So I like that. But um, how would you compare like the different portrayals of Jack Ryan? Yeah, I same. I would definitely rank the Harrison Ford one at the top with Alec Baldwin right behind. Um, and I think that's partially because it's it's much closer to the book. I think the books to release the Hunt for October thing came out in the late 80s. This is early 90s. So it's not far off the original source material, which the later versions of Jack Ryan, they lean too much on the national security side and that is the focus and then they just they just throw a plot at it to give them an excuse to shoot all these kind of special operations scenes or whatever uh and it's not as good i I mean like you said i think the action in these earlier ones is just the like almost the vehicle for them to tell their morality story or, or whatever is actually going on like by the time it gets to john krasinski it's just an action it's just trash like you know, he, I can't, like John Krasinski, even though he was kind of like a layman as Jim in the office, he's not a layman anymore. You know, once he married Emily Blunt and started getting <laughs> professional training, you know, now he's like a stud, you know, he's yeah. in the 13 hours version of himself. Like he's just not, he's no longer that relatable kind of character. Whereas middle-aged Harrison Ford, I think is because his, his, I was also thinking about this, his acting career kind of resembles Jack Ryan in that like Han Solo and Indiana Jones over the hill like middle age in this movie but he still retains those you know action like skills and but but he's now also able to use his brain into like the Sherlock Holmes aspect you were talking about yeah when he needs to and that's and that's the key to victory that not just like the door kickers in the movie don't necessarily have yeah right he's missing puzzle piece so I guess the long story short is I, as as it goes on uh throughout literal time i think it just gets more and more distorted and it's not as good uh, so much yeah. of this movie is like 90s technology right, uh, in, right. in a good way in a good way but i know that this is another one of your great passions is yeah. not just 
geopolitical stories, but also yeah. 1990s as a film uh, decade. Yeah. So what, what makes that so good in, in, in particular? Like what, what makes it good in this movie? Yeah. Uh, well, I think you wrote an article a few weeks ago about the Ernest dad movies. And this is definitely one of those Ernest movies. You know, everyone is trying their hardest and, <laughs> and they're standing yeah. up for what they believe. And even Sean being the bad guy, he's, you know, if you had your brother murdered, right, not murdered, but uh, killed right in front of you, uh, <laughs> then, you know, you'd probably be pissed off, I'd assume. Uh, well, I, I like the Sergeant Bilko, you know, I would take a bullet for you. Well, not in the chest. <laughs> not in the chest. <laughs> not in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think there's uh, the 90s movies, for whatever reason, uh, they were, they, a lot of them centered on kind of like these storytelling aspects that were not cash grabs, if you will, you know, like, um, yeah. And, and, and I know we talk about like original ideas and stuff. And I think there's original ideas today, but, but back then it was almost like you, you, you walked away from movies with like a great appreciation for X, Y, or Z, you know, like I, you, and think about the big hits then like Forrest Gump. Well, now I have a greater appreciation of just being a good person or, what are some other famous movies? In the well, I mean, I think it's, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can make this movie today for a lot of reasons, but uh, partially because it has such a adult only and yeah. kind of male only audience that I think in the 90s, that audience was still big enough to carry a movie to that to make money. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's the case. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors at play. But I think the 90s of it, like you're saying, it's super earnest. It's definitely a dad movie. Anything that's Tom Clancy is, is going to be a dad movie. But um uh, I think that like, if you're going to do that, you got to just go for it like all the way. And I think this movie does. And yeah. Like, that and the other side. and so, that was, yeah, it's good. That was cool back then too. You know, that was, yeah, uh, think about things happening in the world. You know, we had just won desert storm. The, the, I can't remember. I think it was the 93 world trade center bombing. Like it was the, so Al Qaeda was starting to come on the forefront. Like they continue with, bombings of embassies in africa and then the uss coal obviously in 2000 so like the world was it, that was like national security stuff was a lot more relevant to talk about you know you i think you could have made this movie all the way up through like 2008 until the iraq war went bad i think this thing would have gotten made you know uh but it's just since then we've had so many other like more pressing issues like honestly like as soon as war and terror wound down americans focused like national tension just kind of focused elsewhere is and that that reflects the media as well. Point is it just, you're right. Fit a moment in time that has passed. Yeah, I agree. I agree, but it's a good movie uh, for anyone that is into, I mean, you you know what you're getting. So if you're into that, this kind of movie, it's like kind of a spy um, thriller, although I don't know, it's really more of an intrigue than it is a thriller, but um my brother and I, I agree with them. Uh, recommend Patriot Games. Um, I, it, I don't. I, it is streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. Oh, and uh, yep. And Drew, thanks for uh, the recommendation. My next selection is a film production of the musical Miss Saigon for its 25th anniversary. It was released in 2016, and the recommendation comes from my friend. Will Kennedy, if you're unfamiliar with the show, it was written by the same people who wrote Les Miserables, the musical, and it kind of shares a similar sensibility in that 
you're going to cry. <laughs> so uh, for those that are unfamiliar with the setup, basically a uh, young woman who lives on the streets of Vietnam falls in love with a American GI around the fall of Saigon in 1975, and then uh, the second act picks up in 1978 and kind of the fallout from that. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of heart-wrenching drama and soaring ballads and tugging at your heartstrings, <laughs> which Will and I get into now. Will, what's up, man? First question I ask everyone is, why did you recommend this movie for me this week? Uh, well, I think for you, because obviously you and me were like musical buddies in, in Chicago when we were in graduate school, so... And I knew you hadn't seen it because we had talked about it before, and it was relatively new to me. I had seen it like a week or two before on Amazon Prime, and I hadn't heard any of the music or anything before that either. So I went into it completely new. And yeah. I mean, I knew you liked Broadway. We've been to many Broadway shows together, <laughs> and I just I just figured you'd like it. Um, yeah. I like sad Broadway shows. I don't know if you necessarily do, but this definitely fit that demographic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take the let's take the the listener here through the shows that we went to. So I know we went to Hamilton. Yeah. We went, we went to, to we went Dear to, Evan oh, Hansen. Oh, we went to Dear Evan Hansen the night after, I think it was like one or two nights after you had already gone, but you had to go. Two nights. Yeah. Two nights later. But you always yep. That was fun. Then we went to Chicago with Eddie George, right? I totally forgot about Chicago. Yeah, it was Chicago. <laughs> that, was, that was a weird night, man. NFL Hall of Famer Eddie George in the show. Heisman Trophy winner. He hit the Heisman during one of the dance moves. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> Playing the Richard Gere part from the movie. Yeah, uh, Billy Flynn. And then we saw Les Mis. We also saw Les Mis, which you have we a special. We didn't see Les Mis together. What? You, we didn't go together, though? No. So I had already moved out of Chicago when it came. It came right oh. after graduation, and I was living back in Miami. But I was yeah. telling you, you had to go see it. So I went to see that on my own, I guess. What, uh, on my own, there it is. Every, on my own, on my own. Um, <laughs> I guess before we even get into this, Miss Saigon, do you like to go into these shows completely cold, or do you like to like listen to the music beforehand? Because I, I, I lean very strongly on wanting to see it the first time not knowing anything. But where do yeah. you come down from that? So typically I'll listen to like a couple songs from it just to make sure like I'll like the vibe of it to an extent, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to listen to like, an entire cast album or anything like that, because at that point, you know, the whole story, especially in a musical that's, that's sung through like this and there's no dialogue. But I mean, there are certain shows you just can't do that. Like Hamilton, obviously everybody's heard everything from it. Um, I mean, Les Mis is kind of what made me fall in love with it. So I wouldn't have gone to see it if I hadn't listened to the whole album before. Um, so there are a few exceptions, but generally I like to go into it relatively cold. What did, like, where does this stack up to the other shows you've seen? So, it's. I didn't think it was going to be that high, but it, okay. it's pretty high. It's pretty up there. It's top five, I think. Um, obviously, I didn't see it like live in person, so that's another element to it. And I saw like this cast and this cast recording is like an all-star cast, so I'm sure it wouldn't have been as incredible if I had seen it in like a touring production. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything with um, even Oblazada in it, I would automatically give a 13 out of 10 to because that woman <laughs> is extremely talented. Um, but yeah, it's probably, so right now my top three or top, top five is probably Town, which I saw about four days oh, before the pandemic, um, Town, which lead role, even Oblazada. Um, wow. 
yeah, so that was that was the main reason why I drove to New York City to see it was for for her. Um, then Les Mis, then um, probably Dear Evan Hansen, then Miss Saigon. Wow, and Hamilton. Hamilton's top, Hamilton's top ten, not top five. That's that's crazy to me because obviously I'm the biggest fan ever. Um, I know, but it's crazy uh, a lot of but you know, yeah. I mean, I think this this definitely fits more in like the lame uh, mold, you know, where it's uh, oh yeah, like, big sweeping numbers, lots of like uh, sad, like high drama, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. What did you think? I, I was thinking a lot about like how they put this on screen. I like after the Hamilton show came out, I was thinking a lot about that, and then this one, it was it's. I found the editing maybe a little bit distracting, like the, especially like slow motion and flip screen. They're definitely they're doing it for the TV screen. Like it was almost hard to tell what what where they were on stage and I felt like it was maybe destroying what they did with the stage show as far as like choreography and set design. But like what did you think of like how they made it into a movie? No, I definitely ag- agree with you there. And like obviously when I watch Hamilton, the, the Disney Plus version, I have something to compare it to since I've seen a live show with you. Right. Um so I know what it looks like when I'm just like at one single spot looking at it from one angle. Uh, Miss Saigon, obviously, it's harder to do that since I've never seen the live show. Um, but I do definitely get what you're saying. I think a lot of times it, like, went and, like, did, like, slow-mo kind of thing and kept the, the audio at, at the same pace, which was kind of kind of weird. And some of the editing, editing choices were definitely – they were definitely choices that I don't know if I would agree with. Um, but I don't think overall – I mean, you have to make those decisions in the grand scheme of things because – you can't just put a camera stationary and be like, yep, watch this for two and a half hours. Like you can't mm-hmm. expect a, a normal audience to, to appreciate that just watching it on their TV. Um, so I get why they did it, but would I have preferred it just watching it stationary? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like there's like, there's so much work that goes into how they stage the play that I feel like you kind of have to respect that to some degree. And yeah. this one, they did it more like a movie, which, you know, it was good too. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not like hating on it, but yeah. Um, I want, I guess the last thing we have to address here, you love uh, Eva Noblezada, right? Yeah. She's the main character in this show. And she's um, younger than us, which is insane. Uh, which I'm choosing not to think about. <laughs> um, but no, she, she's incredible. The whole cast is incredible. I guess before we even get into this, Miss Saigon, do you like to go into these shows completely cold? Or do you like to like listen to the music beforehand? Because I, I I lean very strongly on wanting to see it the first time, not knowing anything. But where do yeah, you come yeah. down to that? So typically, I'll listen to like a couple songs from it just to make sure like I'll like the vibe of it to an extent. But I wouldn't I wouldn't want to listen to like an entire cast album or anything like that because at that point you know the whole story, especially in a musical that's that's sung through like this and there's no dialogue. Um, yeah. So I guess the, the last thing to ask you is. What is your number one? What's number one on your wish list for shows to see? Like see live in person? Yeah. When you know COVID's over, obviously, and and yeah, and start back up. What what anywhere in the world? Any production? What would you want to see? Uh, so it's, I mean, there's this new show called Six. I think I don't. I have no idea what it's about. I just know it got a lot of praise when in the last Tony Awards cycle. Um, I have no idea what's about. I think it's it's based in like there's, there's a production on Broadway, um, and there's a production getting set up in the West End in London. Um, but I know it's just gotten a lot of really high praise. Um, 
I like I said, I have no idea what it's about, but it it seems interesting, just what everybody says about it. And then the okay. generic one that I haven't had a chance to see yet that I want to see that like everybody knows is I want to see Waitress really bad. Um, uh, I'm gonna say Sarah Bareilles wrote it, and it's it's very good. And I heard some of the album from that, um, and it, it, it's good music, and it just looks like a looks like a pretty decent show. Got it. Well, for for me, it's Hades Town just because of what you said about it. Um, so good, so but good. Book of Mormon. I I had tickets on a Tuesday, and I decided, or I didn't have them. I was going to get them on Tuesday, but I decided to buy them for the Friday, and this was in March. And then Thursday night was the NBA game that shut down with COVID, and by Friday everything was canceled. Yep. Um. So I had <laughs> I had those, and then obviously it went away, and so that one I I mean obviously. Um, Matt and or Matt Stone, Trey Parker, the the South Park guys that wrote that. I think I would really really enjoy that one. But yeah, after what you said about Hades Town, that's that's got to be number one for me. Well, and then, strangely enough, on that point, um, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I had tickets. Like I had literally bought tickets to see the touring production of Miss Saigon in Syracuse in like April, and then you know COVID happened, so I didn't mm. get to see it. And then they just shut the tour down, so I don't even know if it's going to start up again. But I had tickets. But then COVID happened, so COVID's kind of ruining everything. Here's to getting back to the theater with you at some point, my friend. Thank you uh, for the recommendation. Absolutely. I I hope you enjoyed it. Okay, our next recommendation comes from my friend Nathan Bang, who actually just started following this newsletter a couple months ago um, and was actually the impetus for this edition of the podcast because he has been recommending that I watch any of the Studio Ghibli movies um, by writer-director Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, I'm sure I <laughs> mispronounced that, but um, they call him the Japanese Disney, you know, which is a very uh, American way to put it. But um, So he recommended for this week My Neighbor Totoro, uh, which is, you know, a children's Japanese movie, but it really has much more mature sensibilities and themes than a lot of uh, American young adult entertainment. And uh, for those that are unfamiliar, uh, the Studio Ghibli movies have, were put on HBO Max. You can actually see any and all of them uh, if this interests you. The plot of this movie is basically about this family who moves to the country. Um, with There's a, a dad and two young girls who, in this English dub version, are played by Elle and Dakota Fanning. Uh, their mom is in the hospital we don't really know throughout the movie whether she is how sick she is uh, or whether she's going to be coming home, and that's kind of the central tension. Um, but it's basically just about the kids um, finding ways to entertain themselves and then kind of running into a semi-mythical creature named Totoro uh, who they develop a relationship with. So it's not a movie, again, that I would have picked out for myself, um, but Nathan, I know you're, you're hopping on here now, the same question I'm asking everyone is, why'd you pick this for me this week? I picked, I picked this movie for you because I really enjoyed it myself. And I think that why I wanted to watch it was because I, I think out of all the Studio Ghibli films, our Totoro's, the character is the most iconic and the most marketable. So for me, it was, I wanted to know like, oh, who is Totoro? And then once I watched the movie and found out, I was like, dude, this is so literary and artsy all in an hour and a half that I was like, I want Matt to watch this movie. <laughs> so it's between that and Spirit of the Way, but yeah. Right. It, well, it's, it, yeah, it's interesting. I was telling you before this, but 
I yeah, so like I uh, I like came in knowing it was going to be you know like a kids focused entertainment. And obviously, I've heard of, you know he's like oh he's the Japanese Disney, which is you know it's obviously like a little reductive. But um, what did you think about like the balance between kind of like what we understand to be like more adult themes and then also just like that fun kid adventure stuff because um, like obviously in, in American pop culture, you know, I think that's the difference between something like Pixar, you know, where like the parents are crying in yeah. the theater alongside yeah. their kids <laughs> and then versus just like, you know, Nickelodeon cartoons or whatever, where it's just like mind numbing entertainment. So um, I felt like that was kind of like, that was what made this powerful is like, there was actually some like adult stuff going on, but then it was told through the kids perspective. Yeah, def- I definitely agree. There's a, it's definitely something for all ages because I think when you're a kid, you're at that age, so you get to enjoy the excitement and the thrill and adventure, the wonder that they're experiencing. But when you're an adult, uh, you get to experience the nostalgia, but also you get to kind of um, experience the sadness. You know, you understand the deeper motifs, and you understand that things aren't as rosy for the kids as it as as a child you might have thought. You know, mm-hmm. but there's so much underlying tension and sadness and so really yeah I, it definitely is more pixar than i think disney <laughs> right i i like how the movie is still from the kid's perspective so we never really we never really know what's wrong with them like, we know she's sick right and yeah we don't really know what the dad's job is because yeah all that really matters is like how in relationships like you know what's immediately right in front of the kids and i like that mm-hmm. and i like how you kind of touched on it, um, that, like, power of imagination you have as a kid where it made me think of, like, like the Sandlot, you know, where it's, like, they built up the legend of this big bag dog across the fence and every, like, meaningless backyard baseball game is, like, can carry the weight of the world. And it kind of, like, it's told through that kid's lens where it's just, like, everything is the most important thing in the world. And I thought that, um, like you said, even though, like, when you're past that, you can look back on it and kind of, like, remember that feeling. I think that that's, like that's definitely pretty powerful. Um, aside from the fact that, like, <laughs> I was just kind of, like, laughing at how the two young girls in the English dub versions are, are Ellen Dakota Fanning, you know? Yeah, who, like, yeah. now we, like, have, like, a, a pretty strong relationship, too. So, like, it's a fun movie, too. I don't really want, yeah. I don't want to make it out to be, like, some <clears throat> big academic thing. But I guess from your side, the literary side, because uh, I know you're into that, that sort of thing, kind of, like, Totoro, like that, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't really know any of that. So, like, kind of like fill us in briefly on 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 what we're missing there. Yeah. So, um, when I was watching the when I was watching the movie, I think coming in, my big question was who is Totoro? I came to the conclusion that he's sort of another father, another father figure for the girls. So, mm-hmm. uh, you'll never see the father and Totoro together in the same scene, but you'll always see them kind of. Um, adjacent, like in, in like scenes nearby. So I talk about the bus scene where uh, they're waiting for their father, you know. But mm-hmm. instead, Totoro shows up, and it's like it's such a great scene. The girls have this have abs- pretty absent parents, you know. The father is constantly working, or when he's not working, he's like visiting the, visiting the mom and stuff. And the mom's sick in the hospital, so a lot of their time spent is just entertaining themselves or learning how to um, take care of themselves. And so mm-hmm. I think 
for them, it's kind of an extension of their imagination of living in a full or complete family. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. I think um, I had always thought, okay, you never see him with the dad because like you said, it's kind of like the, the kids may be imagining it, you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. is, is it real? Is it not real? Yeah. Um, but you're right. It, it does kind of step in as like a, a surrogate father. But I, I think the thing that I liked about it coming in with no knowledge whatsoever um, is that when they first like introduced to it, it's like a scary thing. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh, there's something in the house. I was like, this is the, the first 15 minutes. I was like, this is the setup of every horror movie ever. It's like a new yeah. family moves into the house in the, in the woods or in the country and there's something in it, you know, and then, um, and then, you know, you come across this giant beast and then of course it like turns out to be um, not just like friendly, but also someone, yeah, someone that kind of like helps them out. And I thought that was kind of like also a, a thing with childhood where like everything is really scary because everything is new. And then kind of like you discover, you know, I mean, <laughs> in some ways uh, you don't discover, but in other ways, some things uh, you discover to be like friendly and helpful and kind of like bring new meaning into your life. So I thought that, that that way that they set that up was really cool too. And like I said, um, even for, for being a kid's movie, I thought like that was like a very, like mature, I guess, way of addressing, you know what I mean? Instead of just, uh, a lot of times in kids programming, the bad guys look bad and the good guys look good, right? I just thought of that. There's no antagonist in the story, right? No, 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 no. It's just just the mom's thickness, I would think, is the only thing, Mm. yeah. Wow, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I I really enjoyed this. Um, And, yeah, I remember, like, the news that Studio Ghibli was going to be on the new, HBO Max, but it's something, it's not really something that you like, you think to dive into. And yeah. I'm glad that you kind of like, um, you kind of like pushed me into it because I really, I did enjoy this. So thank you for the recommendation. Thank you. For, thank you for watching. Now it's time for a movie you've almost definitely heard of coming from my friend Justin, who recommends 1992's Wayne's World. That's right. I had never seen Wayne's World before this week. Of course, starring Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, and Rob Lowe, based on the SNL sketch of the same name. I don't really need to give you a rundown of the plot of this movie. Uh, I mean, it's about two slacker friends trying to promote their public public access cable show. But if you think the movie is actually about that, then I don't really know what to tell you. (laughs) Uh, For this, you know, slapstick comedy, I thought Justin was the perfect person to talk to. He's kind of this newsletter slash podcasts, official bad movie or trashy movie correspondent, and he absolutely loves this movie, and we are going to get into it because I actually have some controversial opinions about it. (laughs) So Justin, welcome in. First question I'm asking everyone is, why did you pick Wayne's World for me to watch this week? Uh, I guess it's because this movie has just been so part of my life pop culturally. I mean, it's it's like a inside family movie that we're constantly referencing, and it goes back almost 30 years now. I mean, uh, as you say, it came out in 1992, and it's been around for a while. It's kind of, you know, dissolved into the mainstream a little bit, and it holds up. I mean, I watch this movie all the time still after seeing it probably hundreds of times, and it's like at the same laughs. So I love the sequel. Uh, characters are great, and like you said, it comes from an SNL skit, and, you know, not, these spinoffs don't always work, but this one really did. Well, okay. Well, then you're really going to be disappointed with what I said next, which is I, I didn't really like this movie. 
Um, and I think part of it was exactly that. Whenever you try to expand a sketch into a movie, you know, anytime they're not just doing their bits, I felt like it was like a little strained. I will say I, I do like what they did, like at the end, where they kind of just like they they put like they took the nuclear option and just decided to like blow up the whole movie. Um, I thought that was that was good. They didn't just go with like the most obvious thing. But I I thought that kind of throughout it, anytime they weren't just doing what we liked about the SNL sketches, uh, it just seemed like a little like kind of preschool, you know, film school 101 sort of thing. I don't know. I didn't really like it. Uh, and I think comedy has changed a lot too, uh, which I can, I can get into, but I, I mean, well, what do, what do you think of when I say I didn't, I don't like it? Well, just from kind of watching movies with you, I know that, um, you look for something that's a little more layered, and Wayne's World is pretty surface level. I mean, the really interesting thing about it is the way Mike Myers and Dana Carvey dive into the characters. I mean, I feel like being that it's characters they created, they really kind of embody them well. And I know that you get kind of a limited taste of them in the SNL skit, but at the same time, this kind of really expands on it further. And if you ever choose to watch the sequel, which after saying that, I don't know if you will, but you'll kind of see that a little bit more. But comedy's changed. This is like very much an extension of SNL during that time period. And, you know, if you can opt in for the laughs, you're not going to leave tremendously intellectually fulfilled. Uh, you know, it's, right. it's not some of the, the really upper echelon comedies. I know the early 2000s, you know, there was kind of a new style with kind of like the Seth Rogen Rat Pack that, that kind of gained right. a whole new layered style that really kind of asserted itself over this. But it's, it's a lot of fun. It really encapsulates the era. I, I, I don't know if I've seen many movies, especially comedies, that really capture that kind of like rock music enthusiast from the early 90s and also kind of that being, being. and I do want to ask you, I, I've debated with my dad and brother all the time, how old do we think Wayne and Garth actually are, but like how old they are, that they're just caught in between of, of trying, to do, trying to do this little passion project and living with their parents, but just kind of enjoying life as it is. I mean, my dad's a musician. He grew up on, on classic rock culture, and this, this movie in itself is like a celebration of that. So we always kind of try to enjoy that a little bit. Yeah, I, I actually want to ask something specific about that. But before we get to that, um, yeah, I got to thinking about how comedy has changed and, and kind of that like Chevy Chase, Bill Murray era of clueless comedies where like the characters aren't in on the joke and they're kind of like losers we can laugh at. You know, I, I think that I'm not as big a fan of that. Um, but it's funny how like now – the goal of comedians is to be this like hyper intelligent truth teller where we're laughing like with the comedian at someone or something else. And, you know, it's kind of like the old saying, like uh, we used to laugh at comedians and listen to politicians. And now we laugh at politicians and listen to comedians, you know, that sort of thing. Like I think comedy has like become too smart in a way. And, you know, Wayne's world is definitely dumb humor. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe I'm like more showing of, yeah, of like clever stuff. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's why I didn't get as many laughs out of it. Although I remember laughing at the, at the SNL skit. So I guess, you know, especially with comedies, it really does come down to as simple as like, did you think it was funny or not? And I, I didn't think it was like not funny, but I, I didn't find myself cracking up a whole lot. I, I truly think Mike Myers is a genius, a comedic genius. I think what he does with Wayne, which kind of gets me every time is Wayne is like the most non-self-aware, self-aware character. And it's, you, you get like this, um, it's interesting, like, look, through, through the whole movie, he's trying, like, is Benjamin trying to get with my girl? Oh, he's the greatest movie producer, but he's also breaking the fourth wall and talking to you about what he's thinking in his head at the same time. And, and comedies were not like this before this. And, you know, so maybe it's not 
the best comedy, but it was definitely its own kind of thing. And I think that yeah. that's kind of something that's self-defining about Mike Myers and his career is that whenever Mike Myers releases a project that he did himself, it's, it kind of stands alone. Like, it's hard to really find things that are truly similar to Wayne's World, things similar to Austin Powers. I know Shrek isn't his creation, but he ultimately took it and made it his own. You can go online and listen to the original Chris Farley lines and you can see how different of a movie it would have been if Mike Myers wasn't in it. So, I mean... I, I praise Mike Myers. I wish he would come out of kind of his his love guru exile that he put himself into after uh, that movie <laughs> tanked. So I, I I don't know, you know. I am about to blow your mind then, and I don't know. I didn't actually do the re- internet research to see if this is like uh, if I'm the first person to think of this. I'm almost certain that's not the case. But I you know I didn't read like you know oral history of Wayne's World or something like that. But I I could not help but think. Okay, we're talking about you know. You were saying how original it is, and there, you know these are two rock and roll obsessed dopes who kind of like fail upwards. This movie is actually just a rip off of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, is it not? No, it's not. No, not even close. <laughs> and now, hold on, hold on. Let me let me present my evidence, okay? Okay. The first Wayne World Wayne's World sketch on SNL debuted February eighteenth, nineteen eighty nine. The movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was released February seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine. One day before it, which makes me think that this sketch was written as, like, a topical commentary on, like, this movie that's coming out, okay? But then they took it and they made their own spin on it. And if you don't believe me, the same they have the same catchphrase. Wayne's catchphrase is excellent. And Bill and Ted's catchphrase is most excellent. Okay. They sound the same way. Okay, but okay. Here's the thing: excellent and most excellent was just popular slang. It'd be like if if your catchphrase was "What's up," and I started saying "What's up," you'd be like, "Oh, you stole my catchphrase." Okay, no In way. The same exact way. Okay. I don't know, man. It's been like some some you know allusion to time travel and stuff. Bill and Ted is like a psychedelic time travel adventure, which is just kind of ludicrous in premise, and and it's actually a lot of fun. I I do love Bill and Ted. I probably should even recommend that as well, but. Wayne's World's completely different in my mind. It's just counterpoint. It, counterpoint. They stand in front of a green screen and it transports them to all the different places in this movie. To Delaware. Yeah, <laughs> and then eventually they come to Delaware and they have the, the good joke about Delaware. They don't know anything about it, but that that sounded a little. I mean, that looked a little bit like like the uh, the space travel to me. We're gonna have to do some further research into that, but I'm going on the record here as refuting that. <laughs> February eighteenth. And then I looked it up February 17th. I don't know. <laughs> All I'm saying is it, it seems to me like it might just be a ripoff. So you're a comedic genius of Mike Myers. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, all, I'm, all I'm asking is, is questions that need, that need answers. Fair enough. Fair enough. But Wayne's World, I'm assuming, you know, most people uh, who are listening to this, you know, have heard of it. So we don't really need to explain what it's about. Um, but. Justin says you need to watch it. I say, oh, there might be other stuff out there. But anyways, Justin, thank you for the recommendation. Uh, Matt, it's a pleasure. I want to throw out one little quick fact that uh, Tia Carrera, who plays Cassandra in the movie, I believe is a Grammy Award winner for, I think she records like Hawaiian music, or back in the day did that, and uh, she sings all of her songs in the movie. So she's extremely talented, has an excellent voice, and in the 90s was a complete babe. <laughs> I can't refuse that. So for that alone, maybe you should go watch Wayne's World, guys. And Justin, thanks. Thanks, man. 
Last but certainly not least is 1944's Arsenic and the Old Lace, recommended by my friend and former roommate, Garrett, who first watched this movie in school. <laughs> so we're going to talk about kind of assigned readings and assigned movies that we actually like, as well as this ad- adaptation of a stage play um, directed by Frank-, Frank Capra, who you might know from It's a Wonderful Life or the three movies that he won Best Oscar for, Best Director for. It's also starring Cary Grant, who I you normally see as like a dashing hero, but he- he's turning up the slapstick comedy to 11 in this movie, also, you might recognize Peter Lorre from his roles in Casablanca or The Maltese Falcon. And honestly, I really, really enjoyed this movie. And I think really anyone who likes kind of the modern Aaron Sorkin style uh, drama where it's, you know, really snappy dialogue and and a million things going on at once and, and characters that have to bounce back and forth between different conversations. And honestly, I think the thing that Garrett is going to like about it, I want to ask him, is... There's a plot twist every, I don't know, 15 minutes, and it just gets really absurd and, and continues to get more absurd as it goes along, but in a way that's really charming. I mean, it's a it's a really, really fun movie. There is one version on Amazon Prime that you can watch, but I would recommend springing you know, the extra three bucks to watch the 1944 version, because Cary Grant's performance is equal parts hilarious and engaging. He kind of has to carry the whole movie on his back, and he really pulls it off, um, so... Arsenic and the Old Lace with my friend Garrett. Garrett, welcome to the show. First question I'm asking everyone is, why'd you pick this seemingly obscure movie for me to watch this week? Um, I was trying to think of something that I watched that, in retrospect, I think kind of paved the way for a lot of things I enjoy to watch uh, when it comes to movies, TV shows, things of, of that nature, but while also trying to think of something that I thought highly of, but expected you not not to have seen. I didn't expect you to be well acquainted to movies from the 1940s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I'm trying to catch up now, but yeah, I'm definitely behind on uh, as I've learned this week, older movies and foreign language movies. Um, yeah. But for you, I mean, I know obviously, I know from us living together that you have not seen nearly as movie, many movies as me. So how did you come across this one? Uh, this was a um, school assigned well i wouldn't say assigned we watched it in class uh this film as we were studying different types of um i don't know genres or just different types of films and plays and things of that nature because this this began as a i don't know if it's a broadway play but i know it was a play yeah i knew it was a stage play of some sort so um we were studying that and so it's kind of something we watched in class that i was not looking forward to and i was very pleasantly surprised into enjoying it. And actually not that many people in my class enjoyed it. So I was a little disappointed by that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's funny how like, as soon as you put it in that context of school, you like suddenly don't care what it is, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We, the, the one of those for me was my freshman year at Ball State. I took like the theater 100 class that we all had to take. And yeah. I remember going to that class being, you know, like, I, like every, you know, male who's like you know oh theater so dumb and then uh and then they had us watch the documentary that was the making of like the green day broadway show and uh-huh. i was like oh dang i actually kind of like this and then <laughs> and then in the in later in the quarter or the semester they like had us go to like a uh, production of next to normal and i was like 
Like, yeah, I, liked I it. saw that too. I loved it. I that liked play. it, and I was like, oh, man, like, I'm so conflicted about how I should feel about this. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I know because you told me the version of it you saw is different than the one that most people would be familiar with and the yeah. one that I saw this week. Because the one I saw yeah. this week was the 1944 version directed by, of course, Frank Capra, who, you know, won three Best Director Oscars and directed It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but the one you saw is different. So tell us about that. Tell us about the one you saw. Yeah, I'm not completely certain, but I, I think that the one I saw included actors from the stage play, at least at least one or two. I don't know how many were. I, I might be wrong on that. But it was like a TV production made in the, in the 60s. And so the only actor I could remember, just because he's an easy one to remember, is Boris Karloff, who played um, right. Frankenstein's monster. Well, so. For those that, like, have no idea, you know, it's kind of a random name for a movie, Arsenic and Lace. Like, what is what is the appeal of this movie? Like, well, I, I really liked it. I know you really liked it. What what makes it so good? Um, just I, I found um, more recently, this, I mean, the, the, the big moment of this was when we watched uh, with our other roommate, Austin, The Sixth Sense, um, just those big like unexpected things that happen that are entertaining. Like obviously six Sense has a twist and those spoilers. If you haven't seen it, spoilers. seen it by now, then, then whatever. But uh, somehow none of us knew what was going to happen in that, which is a miracle still to this day. But um, like you don't expect these, I mean, are like, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a spoiler, but like there's these sweet old ladies that kind of have a dark side to them that you don't expect. So, um, I just found that that appealing and entertaining, and it just takes. It's like a new. It, it was a new twist on comedy for me at the time, and so I don't know. Like looking back now, I can see ways. It, I don't know what paved the way for this movie, or if it was like pretty groundbreaking, or I don't. I don't know the history behind that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in my eyes, it may have paved the way for a lot of the comedy that I like today, or even just like plot twists happening. I'm sure something else. Yeah. Like it's yeah, not no, it, it, but could... you know what I mean. I could definitely tell it was a stage play originally because, you know, it kind of all takes place in one room and there's this, you know, all this chaos going on at the same time. And, and at least in, in the Cary Grant version, the performances are kind of like over the top. I was actually like really surprised because I have Cary Grant's always like this dashing hero type guy. And he's like really dialing up slapstick humor in, in, yeah. in this version. And, and, and it felt like a, a, a play in a lot of ways. And I think, I really think that the great thing about it is, the writing and I think I don't know I mean obviously I'm guessing a stage play was probably three hours long and this version is under two hours so however they adapted it for screen really really worked but it's kind of like snappy dialogue and there's like five different things all happening at once and the way it kind of like comes together like a puzzle is is yeah I really like that in movies as well so that that's kind of like the the thing I was going for but you it it kind of also hits like the the different types of irony too throughout which I think was was an entertainment factor for me you were telling me that you wanted to rewatch this movie, and I think you should rewatch this version with Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what I, should, I believe that I should do. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you would really enjoy it. The version that you're talking about with uh, Boris Karloff, uh, for those that are listening to this, is on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can stream it for free. Um, the Cary Grant version, you gotta rent. And I also want to give a shout out. Peter Laurie is in the 1944 version, and he people will know him from Casablanca and Maltese Falcon. He kind of plays like the uh, Dr. Einstein, kind of like this like squirrely doctor guy. But it, it's funny. It's like 
it's right on the edge of being ridiculous. And I think it kind of yeah. like leans into that a little bit. Um, but I think it, like it pulls it off to where it's like clever enough that like yeah. you're, you're, you buy into the conceit. And I think it's, it's just really, really like fast paced and fun. And a lot of old movies aren't like that. So for those that are scared of old movies, I think that's kind of the selling point. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not like on the, um, level of something like airplane or whatever, but it's like it's got the like hints of um, just like like you were saying, it kind just of on the fringes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I really enjoyed it, uh, and I I had never heard of it, so I'm really glad that you recommended it to me this week. Yes, sir. That will do it for this week, man. That was fun. Uh, I loved connecting with everyone who recommended movies this week, and. As I mentioned, it's something I would love to continue doing. So if you have a movie recommendation for me or you've seen one of the movies that I've recommended, uh, please get in touch and we'd love to have you featured either in the newsletter or the podcast. So uh, let me know. I'm very, very excited about next week's show because I have already seen the movie we're going to be highlighting and it is Boys State on Apple TV+. To be honest with you, I think it's the best movie of the year. I mean, we'll see what comes out at the end end of this year, but it's going to be really hard to knock this one off the pedestal of number one. Boys State on Apple TV Plus, if you want to, you know, go ahead and watch it this week. I cannot recommend it any more highly. We're going to be breaking it all down next Friday morning in the newsletter and on the podcast. And coming next Monday morning, as I'm going to start doing, is Review Rewind. I have not decided which movie... I'm going to be taking a look at, but you'll have to tune in to find out until then, I guess I'll see you at the movies.